0: Bibles, I invite you to turn to that particular passage of Scripture. Uh, it is by no means going to be the only passage we're in, but it serves as uh, sort of the default passage uh, for this particular doctrine of the Salvation Army. Uh, if you have not been here in the next uh, over the last couple of weeks, we have been uh, studying uh, the Salvation Army doctrines. And this morning's doctrine is not actually scripture, because I forgot to change that slide. It is God. It is the second doctrine. So uh, today we're going to be discussing God, who is God, and his nature, his character, his attributes, uh, and, and really what I want to frame to you is uh, this simple question, who is God, is going to be the most important question that you ever ask yourself in your life. Uh, who is God, who you think God is, is going to change how you live your life. Uh, it affects everything uh, from how you live. It affects your relationships. It affects uh, uh, how you uh, uh, have your finances, your money, how you deal with that, it, uh, uh, your, uh, fi- uh, your marriage. It affects every aspect of who you are. Um, and if you don't believe me, that's okay. I'll give you a, a couple of examples here. Um. Did you just change my slide or did I change my slide? Keep your fingers off my, my PowerPoint, you. Ooh, ooh. I just like to embarrass whoever's working the computer. Because uh, Here's the thing. I'm normally the one that's on the computer. And I get, sometimes I get called out. So I like to, to you know, fair play turnaround, right? You with me? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, good. So, who is God is going to be the most important question that you ever ask yourself in your life. It's going to change the way you act in certain situations, the way you react to certain people. Uh, It changes who you are on a fundamental level. Now, if you're, for instance, an atheist and you do not believe in God, that's fair. We're going to have a conversation here today that's probably going to make you a little more uncomfortable, but that's fair. But that is going to change how you live your life. You're going to live your life differently if you don't believe in God than if you do believe in God. And whichever version of God you believe in, if you're a polytheist and you believe in many gods, that is going to change how you live Based uh, versus, sorry, rather someone who is, say, monotheist and only believes in one God. So when you ask yourself the question, who is God, that question is going to change how you live your life. And so uh, you and I, when we look at our lives, we need to answer this question, uh, and this is kind of uh, the question that the second doctrine of the Salvation Army is trying to articulate in our doctrinal statement. And this is our uh, doctrinal statement right here. It says, We believe that there is only one God who is infinitely perfect, the creator, preserver, and governor of all things, and who is the only proper object of religious worship. So this is our second doctrine that tries to encapsulate what we believe about God. We believe there's only one. We believe that he's perfect. We believe that he created the world, that he holds the world in his hand and he preserves it and he still sustains and governs that world and that he is the only proper object. That means the only thing that we should worship in our lives. And so we're going to take some time this morning just to sort of break down uh, this doctrine over its different aspects and so first off this opening statement that says we believe there is only one god it begs to note then if we believe there's only one god what do some other people believe and i'm glad you asked that question because i'm going to answer it what do some people believe there are certain religions in the world that uh there are three religions in the world that make up the majority of people who are called theists. Theist is, is real simple. It just means that you believe in God. Atheist, A is from the Greek. It means a negative or a non. Theist means God. So atheist means no God. Make sense? I know. Some of you woke up this morning and said, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go to school and I wanted to learn the basics of Greek. I got. Oh, yeah, I got, I got, a, I got a signal from Matt. We're all good. So he's with me. The rest of you might not be, but I got Matt. And we're all good, right? I'll preach to one. I don't care. And so theist simply means God. And so if you break the theists of the world uh, up, there are really three major categories that every that the majority of the world population falls into. The first is polytheist. And poly is from the Greek word many. Theist means God, which means? Come. No, no, no. We'll try this again. All right. All right, we'll try this I'm going to ask the question again, and I'm going to need some a little. So poly means many, and theist means God. So polytheist means? Many God. Thank you. Look, some of you think that church is like some guy gets up and he just yells at you for 40 minutes. This is not the way I like to do church. I like to do church in the same way that I like to have a conversation with people. And so sometimes I'm going to ask you questions, and sometimes I'm going to run over your answer, but sometimes you need to answer back so I know that you're awake. Because if I don't know you're awake, I'm just going to keep hammering the point home over and over and over again. We'll be here till tomorrow, and I don't think anyone wants that. Amen? Amen. So polytheist means many god, and there's certain religions in the world that believe there's not just one god who rules everything, but there are, in fact, multiple gods over distinct aspects of creation, and throughout all of human history, this has been the most widely adopted form of theism or belief in, in gods, ranging from the ancient Assyrians to the Egyptians to the Greeks to the Romans, all the way through to the, the particular Hindu religions that we see now populate uh, over in the, uh, in the Asian continent. Uh, we see this this idea that there are many gods, and each one of these gods is in charge of a different thing. Uh, and and when the Bible was written, it was written in such a time that that world belief was very prevalent. And so Scripture comes in, and this is the this is the prophet Moses of God's people who's writing this in Deuteronomy six verse four that says, "Hear, O Israel: The Lord your God, the Lord is one." Well, the Israelites had just come out of a place called Egypt where they worshipped many gods, where they worshipped each uh, different deity that was in charge of different stuff. This guy was in charge of the water and the Nile. This guy was in charge of light and the daytime. This guy was in charge of the night. This guy was in charge of of crops. And this guy over here was in charge of cattle. And when you actually sit down and look at the book of Exodus and the, the ten plagues of Egypt, every single plague corresponds to a different god that the Egyptians worshipped. And so, from you and I, we look at the ten plagues and we say, "Oh man, that's that may be a little bit over the top," but every single plague that God sent was showing His dominance over the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, to show that there is only one God, who is infinitely perfect. So that that polytheists uh, make up a, a large majority of the world's. Uh, believers in god the the other point of view is called monotheist mono means one have you ever ridden a monocycle one wheel monotheist so if mono means one and theist mean god monotheist means monotheist. i love it we're getting there we're getting good all right so uh, the rest of the world who are theist believes in one god and so these would include uh, jews muslims and christians we all believe that there is one God, but even within those structures, there are things that make us different, and so who you believe God is is going to change the way you worship him. If you're a Muslim, you believe uh, in a God that you have to pray a certain number of times a day, and if you don't pray that specific amount, facing in the specific direction at a specific time, he's going to get very mad at you, uh, and, and if you're also in that belief, you have to make uh, a certain trips during your lifetime, you have to make certain missionary journeys, and you have to give a certain amount to the poor, and you have to do a a certain thing at a certain time so that God doesn't get angry with you and that's sort of the Islamic belief about the nature and character of God. Uh, the Jewish uh, uh, understanding of God comes from what we call the Old Testament. They just call it the Holy Scriptures. But their understanding of God is that you have to make a certain amount of offerings uh, per, per day, slash week, slash month, slash year. When you look through the first five books of the Bible, you see a whole bunch of laws in there. And their understanding of God is that you need to follow these laws in order to get into God's good books. You want God to like you, you want God to love you, you want God not to smite you where you stand, you need to follow these 613 laws, and if you put a toe out of line, then there is a corresponding sacrifice for the law that you broke. There is a law that says uh, there's a certain uh, mold issue, that if your tent starts developing mold, there is a sacrifice in order to cleanse your tent of mold. I'm not making that up, I wish I was. You do not want to know what that sacrifice is. Since you asked, you have to get one bird, chop the head off that bird, and dunk that into uh, another bird into the blood of that one and let it go. Does that sound like a good time to you? Like, when when I find mold in my house, there are some other issues that I want to deal with. We've got to find a contractor, someone to come in test it make sure it's not black mold and make sure it's not going to like kill anyone and then you've got to get the, the hazmat suits in and it, it like there's other things that you want to deal with if you find mold right you don't want to have to find two birds and then go out into your backyard and have to deal with some stuff and so and so the the, the Judaistic religion is very heavily rules-based do a do B and then maybe God will like you and then it comes to Christianity. Christianity is vastly different than every other religion because it is based on grace. Now, grace is this interesting doctrine. We're actually going to get to that in a few weeks. We're going to expand more what grace is. But in case you just want a quick definition, it is simply unmerited favor. It's not the prayer that you say over your meal. Grace means unmerited favor. It means you did nothing to deserve the blessing that you're getting. And the, the Christian religion is based around the concept of grace, that you in yourself can do nothing to merit the love of God. It, he loves you simply because of who he is, not because of what you are or what you can do, which to me is a really great thing because I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace, and so I try my best to follow what Scripture says and to not sin and to, to listen to the Holy Spirit's prompts in my life when I'm going off, you know, in the wrong direction. But by myself, I am a sinner. And so I'm really glad that that my salvation is based on God's works, not on mine. And so we believe that there is only one God who is infinitely perfect, the creator, preserver, and governor of all things, and who is the only proper object of religious worship. Which means we need to spend a little bit of time talking about what the word creator means. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. They're all going to be up on the screen. Uh, But if you feel like you've got fast fingers and you can follow along, please do. So Genesis one one: in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word that is used here for created is ara or bara. It means to absolutely create. So we believe that God is the creator of all things. So look to your left, look to your right. Do you see something? God made it, right? If we're going to break this down to its absolute basics, there is nothing in existence that God did not create. And the word that we just looked at is only ever used in Scripture to describe how God creates something out of nothing. It's never used to describe uh, it's never used to describe the way that you and I create. So if I was to take a piece of wood, grab a carving knife, sit down at a campfire, and start to whittle, which is a fun word to say, I eventually would be able to make a carving. Okay, I wouldn't because I can't whittle. I can't. Maybe some of you are blessed with that particular gift that you are creative, artistic type of people that can do that kind of stuff. I can't. All right, I'm going to be real honest with you. I can't. I can make a computer g- jump up and sing, but I cannot do anything really with my hands in the way of construction. That's not going to happen. It's not going to end well for all involved. But maybe if I sat down, uh, you would say, oh, yeah, he created that carving, um, except that I didn't. S- I started with something. I, th- there was a starting place. Uh, I, I didn't create the piece of wood, I didn't create the knife that I used, I didn't create the time that it took. And so when we say that there is only one God who is infinitely perfect, the creator of all things, that word create means that God created everything out of nothing. The thoughts that you have in your head were created by God when he formed your brain and put the electronic impulses in there so that your synapses would fire at certain times so even your own thoughts were created by God. I want you to think about that for a second and then think about how absolute freedom that we've been given by God that he created the very thoughts and impulses of our brain and yet some people use those thoughts and impulses to deny that he even exists. Yet God loves us. So much that he gives us the freedom to make our own choices because God doesn't want a bunch of slaves or robots worshiping him. He wants children to worship him. And so God gives us that freedom. And God created everything out of nothing. He is the preserver. Now, I know about you, but when I think of this word, I think of a life preserver. If you ever go out on a lake on a boat, you get given like a bright orange vest that you put around yourself, you strap in, so that if you fall overboard... You float. A preserver, yeah. The actual word in scripture uh, means to guard, and we find it here in Job chapter twelve, verse ten. In his hand, uh, in his hand is the life of everything, living thing, and all breath of all mankind and in Psalms 3123 love the lord all you his saints the lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repay, repays the one who acts in pride and so what it says in scripture is that the lord preserves or guards his saints now i know when you think of the word saint you think oh that's something in the catholic church when someone's really good does a bunch of miracles they make them a saint right that's sort of what a lot of people understand the word saint to mean. It actually, in Scripture, is the Greek word hagios, and it simply means holy one means one who is set apart for a different purpose. So when you became a Christian and you decided that you were going to love God and follow God, God set you apart for a purpose. He put a path in front of you for you to follow. He said in your life, no longer is your life just going to be about glorifying yourself and you doing whatever's best for you. Instead, it's going to be about glorifying me and doing what's best to raise my kingdom here on heaven. And so he set you apart or made you holy, which makes you a saint. Congratulations. I just saved you a whole bunch of time. So when Scripture says that the saints are entitled to something or the saints get something or the saints should do something, it is talking to you, not like that group of holy people that sit somewhere else and you, like, envy them. You know those people? You know the people who, like, when they wake up in the morning, they just praise Jesus and, like, they're... they're, Ridiculously joyful all the time. You, you know those people, a lot of times we look at those people and, "Oh man, they are real saints. me, I get cranky when my Starbucks gets my, my, my order wrong. I get cranky. I'm not really a saint. Like that person, they could get the actual the absolute worst order in the world. They could have asked for coffee and they could have gotten decaf. And they would say, "No worries, everyone makes mistakes. It's fine, and they would move on. We look at those people and we say, those are the saints. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that anyone who is in the Lord, anyone who has declared God to be the Lord of their life, has been set apart, which makes you set apart and saints. So here where it says, love the Lord, all you his saints, who is it talking to? You. Probably not me because my jokes are really bad and (laughs) even the Lord has, has limits of patience. The Lord preserves the faithful. We believe that there is only one God, infinitely perfect, the creator and preserver. God not only creates all life, he sustains it and preserves it. God is the guardian of our souls. And, and let's be honest, this is uh, this is incredible. I, sometimes I think when we, we look at scripture, we get uh, sort of numb to the amazing stuff that we find in there. And, and, and the fact that God, who spoke all of existence into being, loves you and is the guardian of your soul. Scripture tells us that the desire of God's heart is that no one should perish. His desire, what he wants, is for all of us to enjoy him in his kingdom forever. That's what he wants And so that God who loves us is the same God who created the universe and spoke everything into existence. And he loves you and will preserve you. So when you're going through those times of trials, nowhere in Scripture does it say that God is going to remove the trials from your life. I really wish it did. It would make life a lot easier, let's be honest. Like if we became Christians and suddenly there were no more trials Wouldn't that be great? Like nothing ever went wrong. You never suffered in your finances or in your health or in your family relationships. You always had a good place to stay. You always had a decent meal to eat. Wouldn't that be fantastic? God never guaranteed that when you became a Christian, he was going to remove those trials. What God said is he was going to be with you in them. That you would be able to lean on him in those times of trials. That you would be able to to be supported by him and the Holy Spirit in those times of trials. That you would find the fellowship of other believers as a comfort in those trials. And that he would be with you always, even to the very ends of the earth. The same God that created the universe, spoke everything into existence, loves you, and will preserve you. He is the governor of all things. Governor is is really interesting because, Governor, uh, we come to this word that we find in Scripture which says sovereignty, that God is sovereign over all things. And this is a, a little bit of a tricky thing for us because there is bad things that happen in the world, right? As People get shot and killed, murdered, There are bad stuff that happens in the world. And so to take this idea that God is sovereign over it kind of leaves us with an awkward situation. If God is sovereign, then why doesn't he do anything to stop it? And we've already answered that question because he gave us free will. That free will is a two-edged sword. We can choose it to love him. We can also choose to do evil things. And I truly believe that when his children decide to do evil, that it breaks his heart. I, I don't believe that there is any parent that could stand by and look at their children and look at the, the bad decisions that those children make and be okay with it. I think that every true parent's heart breaks when they look at the decisions that their children make when those decisions are sinful and their heart breaks. And it's no different to God. He looks at his children. He sees the the things that are happening in this world and his heart Breaks, but because of his sovereign love for us, because he has given us that free will, he doesn't impose his sovereignty over the decisions that we make. I don't know about you, but some of the worst moments of my life in feeling bad were when I disappointed a parent figure. That look on their face when you knew that you had done, said, chose the wrong thing. And they weren't angry, they weren't upset, they weren't about to spank you or, you know, kick you out of the house. But that look on their face that they just got disappointed. In the book of Ephesians it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, it means that everything works according to his will. The sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and right to govern all things, but that he does so always and without exception. There is nothing that happens is that is outside of God's control or God's knowledge. I think oftentimes we sort of come to this understanding, this, this thought that maybe, oh, this is going wrong. Maybe God just doesn't know what's going on in my life. Now, maybe this bad thing is happening because God's just not aware of these struggles in my life. No, God knows all things. It says so in Scripture that his knowledge is without limits and boundaries. We use the word omniscient, which means all-knowing. His sovereignty. It's not merely that God has power and the right to govern all things, but that he does so. And it leads us to our last part that God is the only proper object of religious worship. I want to end in a couple of moments just by, by giving you this thought. You and I were created to worship. Worship is an innate part of our human nature. Um, at our core, that is our default programming or wiring that you and I were created to worship. And I'm hammering this point home because if you're not worshiping God, it means that you're going to worship something else. I I want you to to understand this core concept of the Christian faith, that you and I were hardwired to worship, and so if we don't worship God, it doesn't mean that we're not going to worship something else that we're hardwired to worship, and so we will worship something. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks in Doctrine 5, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, they began to worship other things, and we call this worship in Scripture idolatry. Isaiah 43 verse seven says, "Everyone who is called by name by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made." And so, what he's saying is, everyone who is called by my name, uh, created so that I would be glorified. Through it, And so often what we think when we talk about idols and idolatry, we think of the story from the Old Testament. We think of uh, things like the golden calf, right? That's the idolatrous person when they carved this statue out of wood or bone or whatever it happened to be. And then, then people went and bowed down to it and offered it offered it, uh, it something. That's idolatry, not what I do. I mean, it's fine what I do. It's just, it's just something different. I just put my priorities somewhere else. It's interesting, there was a a pastor that went over to India and he came across a shrine on the side of the road um, that was very much like what we talked about earlier uh, uh, with that sacrifice for mold, chicken feathers everywhere and you can imagine the rest. It was a shrine that was used on a daily basis for sacrificing to foreign gods and he he looked at that and he was touring it with a Christian pastor who lived a few blocks down the road and they had started a, a Christian church in the neighborhood and he said, um, does this bother you? And they say, well, yeah, it bothers us. This is idolatry. And and the American pastor said to this guy, do you ever think you're going to, to come to my country and visit the way that we do churches? And that pastor, in the full shadow of the shrine with chicken feathers and blood and everything else, looked at the American pastor and said, I will never go to America because I can't stomach the idolatry. He said your food is an idol and you eat until you're sick. He says, you worship the television and when you go into the room, the family room of the house, all of the seats point towards your idol. His understanding of idolatry is what our understanding should be, that anything, anything that takes your focus off of God in a worshipful mindset is idolatry. One of the Hebrew words for idolatry or idols literally translates to worthless or of no value. When you read in Scripture that this person was worshipping an idol, it literally means they were worshipping something that was worthless. I want you to imagine what a sports stadium would look like to a first century Israelite. Now, I, I like sports. I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. I know some of you, that's going to be a big deal. Calm down. We can all appreciate that as long as we're not Patriots fans, we're fine. Right? (laughs) Yeah? Okay. But can you imagine what it would be like for a first century Israelite to walk into a football stadium and see thousands of people paint all over their faces, over their bodies, chanting, worshipping, what it would be like For the food that's passed around those stadiums, people getting drunk and getting to a a, a height of intoxicated worship whenever their football team scores a touchdown. We look at idolatry differently than maybe some other places do. And I would challenge you to look at your life and ask yourself this question so, why should we worship God alone? God is the only proper object of religious worship, but why? Firstly, we worship God alone because he is worthy. We looked at what the Hebrew word meant that said, everything else is worthless. I'm not saying that sports is bad. Come football season, I'm going to be watching the Seahawks play. But if ever that football game becomes more important than what we do here on Sunday morning that it becomes more important for you and I to engage in that sports worship more than joining together as a a fellowship of believers. It becomes idolatry. See, what often happens is something that God gave us as a good thing becomes a God thing, so it becomes an idol. And what you need to do is look at your life and say, hey, is this this a good thing or is this uh, something that I'm making into a God thing? We worship God alone because he is altogether holy. Isaiah 6 reads, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We believe in a holy God. Third, we worship God alone because if we don't worship God, we will worship something that is not worthy. We worship God because if we don't, we are going to worship something else. Sex, money, power, position, prestige, athletic ability, attractiveness. You can worship a lot of things if you're not worshiping God. And so I'm going to pray, and I want you just to simply ask yourself this question as I do. Is there something in your life that is an idol? Is there something in your life that you are worshipping more than you are worshipping God? Is there something more important that you've put focus, emphasis on other than God? And then I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and convicts you so that you can live a life that is worthy of the grace that has been given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you today. I pray, Lord God, that you be with us, each one of us, as we take a hard look at our lives and to ask ourselves, is there something in our lives that is worthless, but that we have put into the highest position of worship in our lives other than you? Lord we know from your word from scripture that one of the things that you can't stomach more than anything else is idolatry. And Lord we pray that each one of us here gets a fresh a fresh indwelling of your holy spirit so that when we come up to those items that are idolatrous that we can identify them and that you can impart in us this simple ability to identify and to turn in the opposite direction and to put you above everything else in our life. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And I'm going to end in benediction simply by reading the verse that was read for us earlier that says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen, and go with God.